1977, two Yale University students, Terry Gents and Avra Goldman, planned to spend their summer cycling across the United States. But their trip came to a premature and traumatic end when they were attacked by an unknown axe or hatchet man while camping at Klein Falls State Park. The police failed to make an arrest, so years later, Terry decided to investigate for herself. So, what happened, you may ask? And did Terry find her attacker? Stay with me in the swamp and let's find out. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing the sad and absolute tragic story of the Klein Falls Axe Attack. Now this is definitely a little bit different from my typical video that I'd be covering when it comes to wilderness crime, but this story when I found it was definitely one that I thought you guys had to hear. So sit back, relax, and get ready for one hell of a story. The Trans-America Trail leads from the east coast of the United States to the west. Although some people, like Terry Gents and Avra Goldman, opt to travel west to east. The length of the trail varies depending on your route, but most sources claim it's somewhere around 4,200 miles, with adventurers completing an average of 200 miles per day. Less experienced hikers might be traveling around 60 to 80 miles each day. Originally, the trail started in eastern Tennessee, but over time, it became more common to ride from Yorktown in Virginia to Astoria in Oregon, or vice versa. Those undertaking the trail can experience breathtaking United States landmarks including Yellowstone National Park, the Cascade Mountains, the deserts of Utah, the Rocky Mountains, and Sawtooth National Forest, to name a few. The trail is mostly off-road, offering riders clean air and scenic views, but it's not ideal for beginners. Depending on weather and location, adventurers might come up against snow rocky terrain, mud, and challenging desert landscapes. However, in 1976, 4,000 riders of varying ability attempted the trail to celebrate America's 200th birthday. Following the Declaration of Independence in 1776, a group of experienced cyclists started planning the route in 1973. The idea came to them while traveling from Alaska to Argentina but the 1976 event dubbed Bike Centennial was attended by many inexperienced riders using budget-friendly equipment. Half of those that started the trail didn't complete it, but even so, a year later in 1977, it seemed a manageable undertaking for new riders following the success of Bike Centennial. Terry, Avra, and a group of their college friends decided to take on the Trans-America Trail after overhearing someone who had taken part in Bike Centennial raving about their incredible experience. However, one by one, the friends dropped out or changed their minds for various reasons until only Terry and Avra were left. Although, they had planned to go as part of a larger group and their safety in numbers, they didn't want to cancel their trip and miss out on an exciting adventure. Terry and Avra were dorm mates and inseparably close friends, so they felt comfortable enough with each other to travel as a pair. And unfortunately, as we have come to find in many of these mysteries on the Swamp Dweller channel, this doesn't really turn out to be the best case scenario. But we're going to move on to the practice run that they tried. Neither Terry nor Avra were experienced cyclists at all, so they decided to do a practice run by taking a weekend trip to northern New Haven. 
This gave them an opportunity to experience cycling long distance before committing to the actual 80-day, 4,200-mile Trans-American Trail trip. They experienced minor problems on the New Haven trip. For example, the chain on Terry's bike kept coming off, but they were still both enthusiastic about undertaking the long summer trip when they made it to their campsite. However, I think in hindsight, their New Haven trip could be seen as an eerie foreshadow of events to come because they were harassed by a drunken man shortly after arriving at the campground. They decided to put up their tent with the door facing the woods as opposed to the clearing in hopes that this would make it more difficult for the creepy man to find the zip if he were to return with sinister intentions. As they feared, they were disturbed in the night when somebody aggressively shook their tent. They yelled at the intruder to leave them alone and to go away, and the person did eventually leave without getting inside of the tent. It might have been the drunken man from earlier, but they didn't see the nighttime invader, so it could have honestly been anybody else. They didn't want to let this bad experience stop them from taking their summer trip, but they decided to err on the side of caution by camping only at official campsites where they were likely to see other campers and have some sort of safety net. They also planned to avoid camping close to roads where passing cars would be able to see their tent. They really were trying to put their brains together and think every possible thing through so they weren't caught off guard at any point. Now, as summer begins, they begin by traveling to Astoria by bus in Oregon to start the Trans-America Trail. Terry and Avra got to talking to Mark and Kathy, a married couple who were also headed to Astoria to cycle the trail. When they got off the bus, Terry and Avra went ahead because Mark and Kathy's bikes had got lost during their travels. But Mark and Kathy were more experienced riders, so they caught up with the girls the next day. Terry and Avra broke their own rules by camping near roads and at non-official campsites when they were with Mark and Kathy because they felt safer in a group of four. However, a week into the trip, Terry and Avra were starting to struggle, and they were worried about holding the couple back. So, on June 22nd, they agreed to split up and meet again the following day. Because Terry and Avra were going to spend the night without Kathy and Mark, it was important to them to camp at an official campsite. They cycled to Klein Falls Park, where their guidebook claimed overnight camping was permitted, but when they got there, they found signs saying that the park was for daytime use only. Klein Falls State Park, also known as Klein Falls State Scenic Viewpoint, is a nine-acre park located on the Deschutes River, approximately four miles west of Redmond, Oregon. Terry and Avra considered cycling another ten miles to the campsite in Redmond, where they knew Mark and Kathy were staying. But they were tired of a day of cycling, and exhaustion created tensions between them. Avra was keen to go on to Redmond, whilst Terry wanted to stay at Klein Falls. Avra eventually relented, and they set up camp near the river. They faced the door of their tent towards the river for safety, hoping this would confuse any intruders. Terry and Avra confessed to each other that they felt uneasy and sensed that they were being watched. But they discarded their concerns because there was no visible reason to feel unsafe. They had friendly conversations with other park visitors and everything seemed fine. Before turning in for the night though, Terry watched young drivers cruising in the parking lot drifting to show off to their friends. She went to bed shortly after these drivers left the park. Now, this is where things really take a turn for the worse. Terry woke abruptly in pain and quickly realized she was pinned down by a heavyweight. She could barely move, 
The sides of her tent were flattened and it dawned on her that she was trapped beneath a car or truck. Imagine the terror and the bewilderment of waking up from a deep sleep to find yourself underneath a vehicle. I mean, honestly, that sounds like even worse than any horror movie I've seen. Like, even worse than that horror movie Rubber, where it's literally like a tire that murders people. But anyways, Terry's first thought was that the kids from earlier who were messing around in the parking lot, you know, popping wheelies and donuts, she thought that they must have returned and accidentally driven over their tent somehow. She did hear a car door open and then one lone person got out. Then... Avril was screaming at someone to leave her alone, followed by seven thuds. Avril fell silent. Terry listened as footsteps returned to the vehicle. The truck drove forward, relieving the pressure on Terry's chest. But before she knew it, she was experiencing immense pain in her head and arms, and she realized she was being repeatedly hit with something. She was able to see her attacker now that the vehicle was no longer above her. He had an axe or a hatchet in his hands. She was unable to see his face in the darkness, but she could see his body. He was smartly dressed, wearing cowboy boots and a clean plaid shirt tucked neatly into his jeans, standing with one leg on either side of Terry's body as he slowly lowered the weapon into her chest. She grabbed it and pushed it away. She begged the man to take anything he wanted, but please leave her alone. He slowly retracted his weapon, returned to his vehicle, and drove away. Terry heard Avra moaning and found her friend by the river. Avra had suffered horrific head trauma. The injury was so severe that part of her brain was visible. Terry knew she had to get help. She put in her contact lenses with bloody hands, which caused her to see the world through her own red fingerprints. There was nobody nearby because the park was day use only, as we mentioned before. She went to her bike intending to ride to the next town, but she struggled to unlock her bike from the picnic table. She had chained it there earlier for obvious security purposes, and because of her injuries, she had wounds from the hatchet all over her, plus several broken bones from the car running her over earlier. Her upper body, remember, had been completely crushed by this vehicle. Miraculously though, Terry saw a truck approaching in the distance. She worried it might be the attacker returning, but Avra needed urgent medical attention, so she knew she had to take the chance. She waited for help and the truck pulled over and she was relieved to find two teenagers inside. The teenagers, Bill Penhollow and Boo Isaac, sometimes also referred to as Darlene Gervais, happened to be driving through the park. They were shocked by the extent of Terry's injuries. They described her as being drenched in blood from head to toe to the point it was dripping from the ends of her hair. They loaded the two women and their belongings into the truck. While they were doing this, a vehicle with glaring headlights stopped nearby. Bill recalled it as a truck, whilst Boo was adamant about it being a car. They were terrified the attacker had returned, but whoever it was, they drove away. It is possible the attacker came back, but left after seeing Terry and Avra had found help. But I guess we'll never truly know at this point. Bill and Boo took Terry and Avra to the St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. Terry had broken ribs and a broken arm and multiple gashes from the axe or hatchet that needed stitches. She also needed a blood transfusion and surgeries to her shoulder, nose, and forearm. Avra had a skull fracture and was rushed into theater. She survived but was left partially blind. Avra has no memory of the attack. Terry, on the other hand, was able to remember the incident in disturbing detail. She described her attacker to the police as a young man around her age. Although she didn't see the vehicle, she thought it was a truck from the engine noise and because the driver sounded like he was stepping down from a height greater than a car. 
She said her attacker was probably 5'10 or 5'11, but not fit or muscular. Unfortunately, even after hypnotherapy, she was unable to recall the man's face. Unfortunately, as we've come to find in a lot of wilderness crimes on this channel, the police didn't really find much evidence at the scene aside from tire tracks. Both rear tires and one front tire appeared to be bald or partly bald, whilst the other front tire had a distinctive tread. Several witnesses reported seeing a man loitering in the park. He was wearing a plaid shirt and driving a red truck with Washington plates. The person was never identified. At one point, a man in police custody for another crime confessed to the Klein Falls attack, but a polygraph test suggested he was confessing to a crime he had not committed, and the police had no evidence or any reason to believe this man was responsible. Terry and Avro grew gradually distant from each other over time to the point where they sadly were no longer friends. They both eventually returned to Yale and later graduated, and they spoke occasionally during this time. But their relationship was never truly the same. Some people felt the Oregon police didn't do enough to find Terry and Avra's attacker. Eventually, the case was pretty much discarded because the statute of limitations for attempted murder in Oregon at the time was only three years. This meant that even if a new suspect came to light, they wouldn't be able to prosecute. Fortunately, there is now a no limitation of attempted murder. Officially, this case remains unsolved. Nobody has ever been charged with the attempted murder of Terry or Avra and we might never know for certain who was responsible. However, Terry investigated the case herself, writing a book in the process, and she believes she knows the identity of her attacker. Terry started her research by reading the police report of the investigation. She was disappointed to find that there were probably maybe 30 pages in total. The report mentioned two possible suspects, men who in separate incidents had attacked female hitchhikers not far from Klein Falls. Yet, there was nothing in the report that suggested either of these men were fully investigated regarding the attack on Terry and Avra. The report named Richard Wayne Godwin as the prime suspect. After the attack on Terry and Avra, Godwin was imprisoned for the assault and murder of a five-year-old child whose skull he had used as a uh, candle holder. An inmate serving time at the same prison claimed Godwin admitted to the Klein Falls attack. Some of the information Godwin allegedly gave this inmate relating to the violent crimes turned out to be correct, actually. But Godwin had an alibi for some of the additional crimes the inmate accused him of, and he passed a polygraph test when asked about the Klein Falls attack. This suggests Godwin may not have been responsible. Godwin was known to target children, after all, so an attack on adult women seems somewhat unlikely, but it's not impossible. He was also 5'6", 32 years old at the time of the Klein Falls attack, and of scruffy appearance. This is a stark contrast to the tall, young, and smartly dressed cowboy Terry remembers. Godwin's wife said her husband never dressed as a cowboy, and one of the main reasons Godwin was a suspect is because of his niece, who he had been accused of molesting. There is a running theory that he mistook Terry and Avra's tent for his niece's that he thought was apparently supposed to be staying at Klein Falls Park that night as well, and she was the initial intended to target. His niece was one of the witnesses who reported seeing the man with the plaid shirt and red truck lurking in the park. She later confirmed this man was not her uncle, and to her knowledge, her uncle had not been in the park that night. She also claimed that he never touched her or molested her or anything inappropriate, 
But, you know, it was a little bit too late at that point. The allegations had been made. All of this led Terry to believe Godwin was not her attacker. She also discovered another more likely suspect in this process, though. During her investigation, Terry returned to Oregon and spoke to as many people as she could, including her rescuers, Bill Penhollow and Boo Isaac. Bill's girlfriend told Terry that Dick Dam, the hatchet man, was the one who attacked her. Terry was shocked to learn there was someone known as the Hatchet Man. I mean, what the hell? And apparently locals believed he was responsible for the attack on her and Avra for all of these years, but she had never heard a word of this. They described Dam as Terry remembered, a cowboy who would have been 17 in 1977. Terry spoke to Dana, another witness who recalled seeing the man in the plaid shirt. She said he watched her and a friend as they swam in the park. Dana's father was a teacher. He taught Dick Dam, described him as a psycho. Dana's father also said everybody in town knew Dam attacked Terry and Avra, but nobody could actually prove it. This was understandably very confusing for Terry, as again, she had never heard any of this before in all of the years since this attack. If the townsfolk knew Dam was responsible, why wasn't he an official suspect? And why was there nobody mentioning him at all in any of these police reports? As Terry continued her investigation, she learned of two rumors. One was that an axe belonging to Dam was found in the Deschutes River after the attack, the initials DD carved into the weapon. Dam was known to mark his weapons in this way. Another rumor said Dam was flaunting the axe around town, bragging about the attack. It's likely neither of these rumors are actually true, but the possibility that Dam was Terry's attacker is very real. Terry spoke to a woman named Janie, who was Dam's girlfriend at the time of the attack. She described him as a heavy drinker and violent, an abusive partner. The day after the Klein Falls attack, he beat her and almost drowned her in a pond after she threw out a bottle of his vodka. Janie told Terry she noticed his toolbox was missing. She also said she visited the scene of the attack because she suspected her boyfriend was responsible. Janie was adamant that the tire tracks at the scene matched those of Dam's truck. She apparently did report this to police, but she felt she wasn't taken very seriously. In 1995, a detective said tires weren't a match, but this opinion was based on a hand-drawn tire track from police notes that were little more than squiggles. There were rumors Dam switched the positions of his balding tires to avoid suspicions or got new ones altogether. Some people described Dam's truck as black, others said it was blue, Janie said it was two shades of blue and had like a silver trim. This led Terry to believe the lurker with the red truck wasn't the attacker and just happened to be creeping in the park that day. Terry also spoke to Dam's ex-wife Ruby, as well as Kelly, another of his ex-girlfriends. Both confirmed he was abusive. He would lock Ruby out in the cold and in confined spaces. He regularly made her dig her own grave in the backyard. He even killed Kelly's pets. He told her he was innocent of the Klein Falls attacks and as a victim of cruel rumors herself, she believed him. But after learning of his true nature, she believes he is in fact very guilty. Now over the years, Dam did two polygraph tests to clear his name. However, the first test was inconclusive because he was under the influence of alcohol and muscle relaxants. The first results of the second test suggested he was lying when he claimed he wasn't the attacker. The administrator recalled Dam talking like a guilty man, although he never confessed. Detectives wanted to do a third test to be sure the results weren't affected by drugs or alcohol again, 
but Dam threatened the police following the request for a third polygraph, and he was not home when an officer went to collect him for the test. With the statute of limitations for the crime having run out, the authorities weren't really heavily pursuing Dam as a suspect at the time. In 1996, Dam was arrested for kidnapping his 18-year-old male hunting partner. He was found not guilty of kidnap, but guilty of coercion and unlawful use of a weapon. For spectators, including Terry, it was a relief to see him finally imprisoned after his previous 19 arrest had resulted in minor or no consequences. He seemed good at wriggling out of trouble. Dam has since been arrested for crimes including harassment and DUI, but he's currently a free man as far as I know. All things considered, he's a possible suspect for the Kleinfalls attack and the man Terry believes assaulted her, but to play devil's advocate, she didn't see the face of her attacker, so how can she be sure it was him? That said, Dam has been described by many as a smart cowboy, and this matches the description of the individual Terry clearly remembers. There's also no doubt he's a violent man. If you'd like to learn more about this case, Terry's book, Strange Piece of Paradise, makes an interesting read. She recounts the attack and her investigation in painful detail. I also want to shout out the true crime podcast, Murder in the Rain. They dive into this case in two parts if you want to hear more. And that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed this video, please drop a like. It really helps with the algorithm. Thanks for supporting the swamp, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this story, be sure to let me know in the comments and tell me what your favorite part of it was, and if you have a suggestion for a case, be sure to comment them down below. If you enjoyed this video, again, hit that like button, it really helps me out. If you're new to the swamp, be sure to subscribe. I upload new episodes just like this almost every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. I couldn't do this on a daily basis without you guys. I really do appreciate y'all. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever other podcast platform out there, it would really be helpful if you could give this a five-star rating. We're super close to a thousand ratings, and that would really help me out a ton. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you guys, as always, for supporting me, and I'll see you guys soon with some more creepy stories.